It's no secret that American infrastructure is not at its zenith. One of the things that I often find myself invested in when doing research or archival work is the history of American transportation. To me, it's not only a fascinating subject, but also a painful one. It's, quite frankly, astonishing to see the incredible network of trains, trolleys, and elevated railways that were intentionally destroyed and dismantled over the course of the 20th century. In 1900, there were 193,000 miles of railroad track running passenger service across the nation. Today, it's about a tenth of that. Amtrak only services around 21,000 miles of rail. To get a sense of what our infrastructure once looked like, my town, which has never in its history been larger than 150 people, once had its own train station connecting to both Philadelphia and New York. That's something that's true for thousands of communities and millions of people across the country. In order to meet the demands of a society that is not on the brink of climate destruction, we're going to need a revolution in the way that we think about transportation. We need to throw off the burden of 80 years of car-centric thinking. It really makes me quite frustrated to think that we once had the exact thing that we need in this moment, but it was intentionally dismantled for reasons that ultimately boil down to nothing more than greed. Today, I want to talk a little bit about one of those cases. Let's talk about the death of the streetcar. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 107, The Yellow Car. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. And, as always, my sources are in the description. With that, let's get on to the show. Now, like everything else in the entire world, the story of America's transportation decline is not so simple. There were a number of factors that contributed to the decline of the streetcar system, not all of which I can include here, but some of which I can talk about later, including suburbanization and the interstate system. Now, some people might see the fact that there are other factors at play here, and use that to refute the assertion that there was a concerted effort to kill mass transit in favor of the car. They might be right to a certain degree, inasmuch as the corporations I'll be talking about in this episode are not solely to blame. But one thing that I think is important to keep in mind here is that we were not fated to create the world in which we now live. There are identifiable reasons why our systems have developed like they have. It was not destiny that created inner-city highways and tore down neighborhoods for parking garages. We just as easily could have taken a different path. The reason we've ended up with the world as we know it is because, to put it very simply, People in power were incentivized to make it that way. So, let's talk about streetcars. The streetcar, also known as the tram, has been around for quite a while. Beginning in the early 1800s, they were pulled by teams of horses. Eventually, in 1875, Ukrainian engineer Fyodor Pirotsky invented the first electric tram, though it was slow to spread throughout the Russian Empire, instead seeing a significant amount of notoriety at the 1879 Berlin Commercial Exhibition, where the concept had been improved by the German engineer Werner Siemens. 
Horse-drawn streetcars, fittingly referred to as horse cars, first came to America in the 1830s, where they cropped up in Manhattan and Harlem, followed soon after by New Orleans. As the 1800s came to an end, engineers across the country began the process of mechanizing the system, which has left us with things like San Francisco's cable cars. In the 1880s and 90s, events like the World's Columbian Exposition helped convey to the country the many wonders of electricity. In 1886, an electrical engineer named Frank Sprague, who had apprenticed under Thomas Edison, developed a design for a streetcar driven by an electric motor powered by overhead wires. His design would go on to be used for decades almost unchanged, and earn him the nickname the Father of Electric Traction. By 1902, there were 15,000 miles of streetcar tracks across the country and I'll have you recall that Amtrak currently only operates 6,000 more miles than that. The streetcar was a boon to the American city, ushering in the first wave of suburbanization with the establishment of what are called streetcar suburbs, the first case of what we might now call a bedroom community or an exurb. One thing that became readily apparent during the expansion of America's streetcar systems was that they could be quite costly to build. There was a large amount of physical infrastructure needed to efficiently run a streetcar line, including not only laying the rails, but also stringing the electric wires and building generation stations and trolley barns. In response to this large upfront investment, transportation companies usually wanted a monopoly guarantee from the city in which they operated, ensuring them that they would be the only streetcar game in town. They usually got them, but with a price attached that would go on to do significant harm to their business. Often streetcar companies had to maintain the street surrounding their tracks, and they had to guarantee a fixed price for fares, usually a nickel, that wasn't indexed to inflation. So with the benefit of hindsight, we might be able to see why those policies might cause some problems. But 120 years ago, they weren't too concerned about it. This monopolization led to the creation of extraordinarily wealthy figures called traction magnates, who began to command great wealth and power. If you're from the Philadelphia area, you may have heard of Widener University, which is named after Peter Widener, a man who became one of the richest people in American history, thanks in part to his status as the founder of the Philadelphia Traction Company, which would go to control streetcar systems in multiple cities. In Chicago, streetcar baron Charles Yerkes helped ignite the Chicago Traction Wars, a political conflict that lasted almost 20 years and was concerned entirely with ownership of the city's streetcar lines. It's at this point that I feel like I should clarify that there are multiple villains in this story. The only good thing is the streetcars themselves, not so much the people who controlled them, and especially not the ones who dismantled them. The streetcar syndicates that controlled public transit across the country were infamous for their corruption and undue influence of government, and although their business might have looked more innocent than copper mining or banking, the traction magnates of old were every bit as brutal as their more often remembered rubber baron friends. As a matter of fact, company responses to streetcar strikes were almost uniquely violent. One notable example being the San Francisco streetcar strike of 1907, which resulted in the injury of over a thousand people and the deaths of 31, 25 of whom were passengers. So, now that I've talked about one of the villains, I think it's about time that I switch to the other half of the century, 
and talk about some of the others. The rise of the automobile wrought havoc on the streetcar industry, and not just because they siphoned off passengers. In many cities, streetcars didn't have guaranteed right-of-ways, and so increased traffic on the roads meant the trolley services became slower and more unreliable, even in the years before World War II when only a small percentage of the population was driving. More cars also meant more wear on the roads, which traction companies were contractually obliged to maintain, cutting further into their slim margins that had been already shrunk by the Great Depression. Many of their fixed fares had been made artificially low due to years of inflation, and to make matters worse, electric companies, which had often owned streetcar lines, had been forced to divest from them due to the passage of the 1935 Weyburn-Wheeler Act, which meant that the lines now had to buy their electricity at a much higher price. In the 1930s and 40s, streetcar systems were already in bad shape but it would really be in the 1950s when they were on death's door. The Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 established the interstate system and cemented America as a car-centric nation. Not only do we see the replacement of streetcars with buses, but in the following decades of increasing deregulation, the contracting role of the state saw a massive shrinkage in the importance of transit as a whole, leading to decades of deferred maintenance in those systems that had been municipalized. But. I need to go back for a second, because I've actually skipped over something very important. Because, like I said, these things weren't destined to happen. We're talking about infrastructure, a physical thing that we once had that we don't have now. Someone had to tear it up. In 1936, General Motors, Standard Oil of California, Phillips, and Firestone Tire bought a dinky little rural Minnesota transit company that only had two buses. They turned it into a holding company and gave it a fancy new name, National City Lines. Its express purpose was to buy streetcar lines, tear up the rails, scrap the cars, and replace them with the dirty, loud, GM city buses that bought Standards Oil from Phillips Station and rolled on Firestone tires. By 1947, the year they were indicted with conspiring to monopolize the sale of buses, they owned and were dismantling over 50 major transit systems in 16 different states, including Los Angeles, Oakland, Philadelphia, Houston, St. Louis, Salt Lake City, and Baltimore. The 1949 case United States versus National City Lines Incorporated found the corporation's funding NCL guilty of conspiring to monopolize the market for buses and related products. In a stunning show of bravery that was sure to scare off capital interests from cannibalizing our public services for profit, each company was fined a whole $5,000, with each of their board members held to the princely sum of a dollar each. And that's a story of how infrastructure disappears. To rebuild only what was lost, and not even to expand to meet the needs of our greater population, seems to be an almost unthinkable task. Just as we are now a car-centric society, we could have been a transit-focused one. Instead of pouring trillions of dollars into interstates and freeways and interchanges and bypasses, we could have funded interurbans and streetcars and subways and bullet trains. Well, there's no use speculating on what might have been. 
Thanks for listening this week. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is the end of the line.